Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate. It's a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, you know that we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that New York neighborhood special? On some shows, like tonight's, we host an interesting topic that talks about a vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. You know, on prior episodes, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from or lived in New York. We've looked at the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including those people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community, LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the histories of bicycle and cycling. We've looked at the history of punk and opera, visited some of our greatest train stations, and even crossed some of our greatest bridges. Yes, New York has great bridges, among other things. Uh, after the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google, as well as other services. Well, it's springtime here in New York. New York even gets warm in the spring. And this show, number 110, is called Take Me Out to the Ball Game. But more specifically, we're going to look at baseball stadiums that are no longer with us, but that still live on in some people's hearts and certainly in our memories. We have two great guests tonight. Our first guest is no stranger to rediscovering New York. He's Jason Antos. Jason is a journalist and author of six well-received books on the borough of Queens. He's a graduate of the University of Miami and is a lifelong New Yorker. His family has lived in the five boroughs since 1913. His first book is on the history of Whitestone, and it was published in 2006 when he was 25. In 2007, Jason wrote the first history book ever written on Shea Stadium, which is in our lineup tonight, I suppose, pun intended, and it's currently in the fourth printing. Jason's published other books, Flushing Then and Now, Jackson Heights, Images of America, Whitestone, Corona, the original year, the early years, sorry, Jason, and Queens Then and Now. Jason's latest book is on the history of Douglaston and Little Neck, which has just been published. Jason's recent um, prolific affiliations include being the associate editor of the Queen's Chronicle. And if that's not enough, he's the president of the Queen's Historical Society. And our second guest is David Kaplan. Dave is a journalist, educator, sports historian, and he's a founding director of the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center, which opened in 1998 on the campus of Montclair State University in New Jersey. Prior to helping the museum, Dave was a sports reporter and editor with the Associated Press and New York Daily News. He's currently an adjunct professor at Montclair State School of Communications and Media and is also a consultant for the St. Paul Saints and City of Baseball Museum. Dave has written for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and collaborated with baseball legend Yogi Berra on four books, including the New York Times bestseller, When You Come to a Fork in the Road, Take It. I love that phrase that Yogi said. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Jason Antos, Dave Kaplan, hearty welcomes to Rediscovering New York. You're muted. Uh, okay. Hello. Good. Now you're unmuted. Excellent, okay. guys. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having us. 
Uh, Jason, let's talk about your background for a second. Um, how did you get in, uh, interested in, in the history of New York City and the history of Queens specifically? Oh, I've always been fascinated ever since I was a kid um, on the history of our great borough. Um, and when I was in high school, I decided that I wanted to uh, do writing and journalism professionally. And I just started writing about uh, local stories in Queens. I began um, focusing on historic landmarks and areas throughout the borough. And it was just, it really started off like anything as a hobby. And uh, when I finished from University of Miami, I knew that's what I wanted to do professionally, but I had to find an angle in which to do it. And uh, when I got the the job at the, the Gazette newspaper, that's really when I was able to get into writing about not only local uh, interests, but also historical local topics as well. And also about Chase Stadium, which we're going to talk about tonight. Yes. Um. Dave, how did you get interested in, I mean, there are lots of sports fans and there are people who are interested in, in history. Being a sports historian is uh, not only specialized, but it sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. When did you decide that you would get involved in the business of, or the, or the um, vocation of uh, uh, looking at the history of sports and reporting on it? Well, it's funny, Jeff. I went to, um, a uh, very sports-minded college, uh, Cortland State, where uh, uh, sports was very, very big there and uh, big phys ed school. And I was a child of the 70s, where um, so influenced by Woodward and Bernstein. So I thought it'd be very cool to par- uh, combine sports and newspapers. And that was really my dream. Um, so I got a job ultimately at the New York Daily News, uh, uh, right as the Mets were on the precipice of uh, winning the um, World Series in um, in 86. And so I was a Sunday sports editor, and it was a, a great, great ride back then because we had a, a, an amazing staff, an amazing talent, talented uh, roster of writers, and uh, it was just really uh, such a joy working with them and uh, thinking up story ideas and making the uh, you know daily news as vibrant as possible back when newspapers really did matter. Um, back in back in the eighties and early nineties, and um, so I just combined my two uh, two passions, which are really uh, the printed word and, and sports, and um, you know, and I always was a you know always a history buff as well. Well, aside from you both uh, loving history and uh, loving sports history, another thing that's common to you is that you're both Mets fans. So that's a thing we're going to drink to as well. I used to be a Mets fan. I grew up a Mets fan, but now I I, I live two subway stops from Yankee Stadium. Now I'm a Yankees fan if they make the playoffs. Otherwise, not so much. Uh, (laughs) Now I'm going to get some uh, hate email as a result of that. Um, You know, one thing that's really interesting about, about baseball in New York is some of the names of the old stadiums people remember well, like the Polo Grounds and Ebbets Field, which we're going to talk about. But uh, New York actually has almost a dozen baseball parks, uh, places that baseball was played that don't exist anymore, um, although you can see remnants of them. Um, there is a remnant of a baseball club. Uh, it's in Park Slope. <clears throat> it's actually, actually, it's in Gowanus. It's on Third uh, Avenue on, uh, on the corner of First and Third Street. It's not really a stadium. There's a wall that was there. Uh, it was called Washington Park. Um, was this the first place, Jason, that, that baseball was played in New York by, by a team? It's uh, one of the first places where baseball was played. 
Um, it's actually the the original home or one of the original homes of the uh, what evolved into the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, but believe it or not, the first recorded baseball game in which admission was charged uh, for people to come pay to watch a game, because keep in mind, it's the, it's the great American pastime. You know, people watched it for free. But the first place where admission was charged was right here in Queens, was in Corona, not too far from where Shea Stadium would be built over 100 years later. And uh, I remember about, oh, five years ago, the baseball from that game uh, was actually auctioned off at, at Christie's for about $25,000. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that, that it was played in Corona. Um they were actually, oh, by the way, the name of the Brooklyn Dodgers used to be called the Brooklyn Athletics. Um, uh, and uh, it's sort of a, a semi-famous story. Do you want to tell our, our listeners, Jason, how they got the name the Dodgers? Well, they used to be, well, actually in the days of trolleys that ran all over the city and uh, on the buses, there was trolley tracks that ran in front of the stadium, which was near 3rd and 5th Street in Manhattan. And the uh, people, you know, there was no uh, red lights or traffic stops for these trolleys. They would just come whizzing by and people had to time uh, their steps very precisely as they crossed the street. And this was all over the five boroughs in Long Island. And actually, you would have to dodge the trolley because they were not stopping for you. Mm. And uh, so they became known as the trolley dodgers. There are actually a couple of uh, baseball stadiums uh, right where this was played. One, for the first one was between, it was actually was in Park Slope. It was between 4th and 5th Avenue at the place where the old stone house is right now. Yes. And um, uh, they called it, uh, why was it called Washington Park originally? That I, that I do not know. Perhaps oh. Dave can, can... Well, I can't believe, Jason, I'm going to stump you with this one. I, I actually know something about New York history that you don't. I'm shocked because you're, you're so incredibly knowledgeable about it. It's because the old stone house was in the vicinity of that. And that's the building that's still extant uh, that Washington used as his headquarters when he was in Brooklyn during the Battle of Long Island. Yeah. In fact, during the battle that took place in now it's Prospect Park when uh, the 400 Marylanders kept uh, the British and the Hessians back that enabled uh, the Continental forces to retreat to Brooklyn Heights and get across the East River and live to fight another day, thank goodness. And so they named it in honor of Washington. The, there's a, the, the house is still standing, or there's like a replica of the house? If yes. I'm yes. I think it's rebuilt. There are, there are remnants of it, but it's still it's still they've moved it a couple of times, but it's, but it's there. And it's a great, it's, it's a great uh, sight to see. Um, uh, the Dodgers actually left for a different park, uh, which we'll discuss in, in a little bit. Um, they went to a, a, a club in Brownsville. It was called Eastern Park. Um, but as baseball was becoming more of a business, they couldn't get many fans to go out to Brownsville. So they, they canned that after a number of years and they came back and they built a new stadium in Washington in uh, uh, now what's Gowanus. And that actually, the original wall is still there of that stadium. You would never know that there was a baseball, uh, a, a place where people paid to watch sure. baseball, but it's right there. It's on the east side of Third Avenue between First and Third Street. It's and every a, time, sorry. A, Con Ed runs it now, right? It's a Con Ed facility. I think so. Yep. But now that I know that every time I walk by, I go, wow, I like touched the wall. This is, you know, this is where the Dodgers first started out. Well, not that exact when it was a block away. Um, well, uh, we started the episode talking about old stadiums in Brooklyn. 
the next natural uh, topic would be to be talk about where the uh, the trolley Dodgers, as they were called before the Dodgers went, and that's the Ebbets, Ebbets Field. But I do want to go chronologically. So we're going to um, uh, talk about another stadium, but we're going to do that after we take a short break. Uh, my guests are Jason Antos, president of the Queens Historical Society and sports journalist and author Dave Kaplan. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back everyone episode 110 on rediscovering new york take me out to the ball game or actually take me down the road the memory lane of yesteryear to old ball games my two guests jason antos president of the queen's historical society and author one of his books is called shea stadium very appropriately and dave kaplan david is a sports historian educator and a journalist um let's move to the polo grounds which a lot of people know but uh dave um, many people remember the polo grounds to be above 150, 155th Street, right by the Harlem River, but that wasn't the original polo grounds, was it? 
No, exactly. The polo grounds uh, is actually the stadium you just mentioned, Jeff, is uh, really mistake is kind of a misnomer. There was no polo ever played there. Uh, but the original polo grounds was was pol- were literally polo grounds. It was uh, in Central Park on Fifth, Fifth Avenue, 110th Street. And just as baseball was really becoming a business in the 1880s, it was the home of the Giants. That's where they got their name. Uh, the manager said, "These are well, these are my Giants. These, these are my big men." And um, but unfortunately, the Giants were evicted when the city decided to erect a traffic circle <laughs> right in the middle of 110th and the Fifth, and uh, they had to find another place to play. And they went willingly. They didn't put up a fight. <laughs> I, <was thinking> about- <laughs> I think there was a battle back then. I think there was. Um, ultimately, they uh, settled in the, as you mentioned, the northeast uh, part of Harlem uh, under a hill called Coogan's Bluff. And um, so the Polo Grounds really opened in 1891, and it became the home of the New York Giants from 1891 to 1957 host of so many extraordinary events and uh, also the home of the football giants from 1925 to, to 55 and uh, great boxing matches and just, and also the home of the Yankees from 1913 to 1922 before Yankee stadium was built. Um, and the Mets from 62 to 63. So Polo Grounds is really one of the most celebrated and renowned ball ballparks in, in the country. I always wondered why, you know, the Polo Grounds at a hunt between 110th and 112th Street was such a different uh, kind of a place. And the Polo Grounds was a real stadium, as we would know what a stadium is. I wonder why they kept the name. Was it for branding and business purposes to, to, I think to, to so. keep the I continuity think they, going? Yeah, I think they just kept moving the name along. Um, you know, as Jason will tell you, you know, when the Dodgers moved to uh, to Ebbets, they were going to continue to call that new new uh, stadium that they were building, Washington Park. And then Ebbets was convinced by a newspaper man to call it after himself. So, yeah, I think it was more of a branding thing than anything else, even though there was no polo ever played in, the, in those, those polo grounds. Hmm. Were the polo grounds expanded uh, at the northern location, or did they basically just build the stadium and then leave it until uh, it, it, it was no longer? It was actually expanded. The original capacity for the pole grounds, uh, right, you know, off, of, you know, it was down below the, the Coogan's Bluff and uh, right by the Harlem River. The capacity was about sixteen thousand. But there was a fire uh, in nineteen eleven. Actually, the Giants had to move to uh, Hilltop Park, where the Yankees were actually playing, one hundred sixty eighth Street and Broadway, now the site of Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, and when it was rebuilt the next year, the capacity was uh, built and there were new, new bleachers put in and it started to take uh, kind of a different shape, a very, very unique shape, uh, like a horseshoe shape, uh, or people say it was like a bathtub, uh, a very bizarre um, circumferences, but um, uh, that really gave the uh, polo ground such a unique uh, look. And, um, you know, I think a lot of football stadiums start to emulate the, uh, the dimensions of uh, polo grounds. Well, the program is not a show about about sports. I know that's going to disappoint you as a sports reporter, Dave. But uh, let's talk about some of the baseball greats who played at the polo grounds. Who were some of the great baseball players who played there? 
Well, John McGraw was the uh, one of the great leaders in baseball, and his giant teams in the early 20th century were, were dominant. Uh, Christy Mathewson, um, you know, later on Bill Terry, um, uh, Casey Stengel played for the New York Giants, and uh, they were they were a, a, a nationally powerhouse. Um, later on, Mel Ott, um, and then you know we go into the fifties, and uh, you know Willie Mays got his start uh, playing in the Polo Grounds and became a uh, you know one of the most uh, beloved players of all time. Um, but the um, the New York Giants, uh, it's an interesting story, Jeff, the fact that they were sharing it with the Yankees, but when the Yankees had acquired uh, Babe Ruth in 1920, and they they were tenants of the Giants and John McGraw at the Polo Grounds, they started outdrawing the Giants because Ruth was such a gate attraction. Very first team to draw over a million fans. So uh, McGraw was, was really ticked, and he wanted to evict the Yankees and uh, uh, thought they would just basically disappear and unbeknownst to him and to his consternation, the Yankees built right across from the Harlem river, this majestic super stadium, which became Yankee stadium. Which we will talk about the original Yankee stadium, not to be confused with the current Yankee stadium, another uh, former stadium. Why did the giants leave New York? They were pretty much persuaded, uh, because uh, the Dodgers had left uh, Brooklyn for L.A. and uh, Walter O'Malley uh, convinced Horace Stoneham of the Giants that they could, con- you know, there was, you, you, there's more riches in California. We can continue our rivalry on the West Coast, which was really the, one of the most storied rivalries in all of sports. Um, also, I think the New York was changing back then in the late 50s. Uh, certainly, Ebbets was uh, not conducive for cars. Uh, they had a very small capacity. Polo Grounds also um, was, you know, that stadium was getting a little bit run down too, and, and Stoneham was looking for, you know, greener pastures, so to speak. Um, the Polo Grounds had no real tenant uh, for five years. The Giants left for San Francisco after the 57 season. Um, and the National League uh, returned with a team in 62. We'll talk about the Mets uh, a little later in the program, managed by Casey Stengel. Um, why did the – Ebbets Field was, was demolished much sooner after the Dodgers left. What, what kept the Polo Grounds going for a number of years after the Giants left? Well, it's interesting, you know, when Ebbets Field, when the Dodgers left Ebbets Field after the 1957 season, it was still used. Uh, there was some college baseball play there, uh, stock car racing. Same thing with uh, the Polo Grounds. There was, um, it actually later became the home of the New York Titans, which became the Jets in, in 1960. Um, uh, there was soccer played there. Um, and, and I think uh, the Continental League, which was supposed to be this third major league, was uh, going to play in New York. Uh, Branch Rickey, believe it or not, was one of the uh, organizers of the Continental League, which never got off the ground. But then there was also talk that the Mets would, would form and become an expansion team. And I think they needed a, a stadium ready ready to play in. And so the Polo Grounds was refurbished for about $300,000 back then to get ready for the Mets to start their inaugural season in 62. But um, to answer your question, I think um, uh, they just didn't know what to do with, with, with the stadium and there was still, there was still some use for it. 
And I think at that point, when uh, right before uh, the Polo Grounds met its fate, uh, the city wanted uh, that area for uh, affordable housing. Exactly. So they built housing projects. Yeah, 1,700 units for you know, low-income housing. Uh, exactly. And you still see that today. Maybe a little, a little bit of uh, a poetic um, uh, commonality. Uh, the same wrecking ball that was used to demolish Ebbets Field in 1960 was used to demolish the polo grounds a number of years later. Speaking of Ebbets Field, um, we'll move back to Brooklyn. I love it back to Brooklyn. Who was Charles Ebbets? What, 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 was, he, what was he famous for? So Charles Ebbets was originally the bookkeeper for, for the Dodgers, and uh, he ultimately took ownership of the team, um, but he was really... Um, had to scramble. Uh, the team was, he was in debt. He had to, when they created, he had gotten tired of Washington Park and just thought that the Dodgers needed a better facility to play in. Uh, so they, he bought uh, this plot of land, which was really kind of a slum in Brooklyn back then. I mean, it was called Pig Town, where a lot of farmers would bring their pigs to feed. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of people who would just throw garbage in this, uh, you know, uh, I think about four acre plot of land. Um, Didn't Brooklyn but, have a sanitation department then? <laughs> Picking up the garbage. It was, they weren't it was its own city for a while apparently. until 1898. But, and uh, it was a big stench too. I mean, uh, but he, but Ebbets actually uh, was able to buy out the uh, uh, the people who owned the plots and um, you know, decided to build uh, one. Of the, you know, this was really kind of a golden age for these new stadiums. Uh, Comiskey Park had just been built, I think, in 1910, Fenway Park in 1912, and the Tiger Stadium. So these new, you know, back then there was no there was no ballparks or stadiums. They were all fields. Uh, but Ebbets was really a, a very cool, uh, unique uh, stadium. I had a marble rotunda, and it was, you know, just a very an intimate place for the fans. The capacity was still only 32,000 people. Um, and uh, but Ebbets was uh, he was just basically a bookkeeper who took control of the team. And uh, when someone said, you know, what are you going to name? And he said, I'll just keep the name Washington Park. And they said, well, what, you're the one who went in a hop for it. This is your idea. Well, this will be your monument. Why don't you call it Ebbets Field? And he goes, well, I guess suppose I will. And that's how it became Ebbets Field. All right. Well, we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with sports journalist Dave Kaplan and historian Jason Antos, who's also the president of the Queens Historical Society. We will be back in a couple of minutes. Stay tuned. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. 
While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's on all three or Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we continue our discussion with our two guests, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me at my team at 646-306-4761. Jason, you have written at least a half a dozen books about the history of Queens. Um, Shea Stadium was your second book. We're going to talk about Shea a little bit later because we're doing this sort of in chronological order. We got to finish up Ebbets Field and talk about the old Yankee Stadium. But um, uh, when did you decide that you wanted to write a book about Shea? I, I have been in love with Shea Stadium ever since I was a boy. I, I The first baseball game that I ever saw, believe it or not, was game six of the 1986 World Series. And I remember being at a cousin's house in Corona as a six-year-old watching that game. And it was so exciting. And from that point, I was hooked. And um, I had written a couple of uh, articles as a contributor uh, in the early 2000s. And then after the success of the Whitestone book, which really took off, it sold out within a month. I sold uh, over 1,200 copies 
in about five weeks. Uh, the publishing company asked me what, uh, you know, they gave me carte blanche on what I wanted to do for my next book. And since Shay had about a year and change to go before its demise, I said, this is, this is the one that I, I want to write about. Hmm. I think that uh, you and Dave must have been at that same game because Dave talked about uh, writing for the Daily News during this series. I was so. working that day, Jason. How'd you get tickets? No, no, no. I was I was at a at a cousin's house in Corral oh. on the other side of the Grand Central where the Holiday Inn is. Okay. Opposite, and he lived about a block down from there, so we could mm-hmm. see the ballpark. It's right there. Yeah. And knowing that all of that excitement was going on there, but you know, six year old watching it on uh, you know a small color TV around yay big, but the place was going crazy. And I'll never forget the excitement uh, when the ball went through Buckner's legs and that hop and, and it just, the whole place exploded. And so I can imagine what was going on inside the stadium. I'd love to hear it from you. you well, that's- I, I, you know, my first game, Jason, I was seven years old uh, and I went to a Memorial day double header. Uh, the first year of Shea stadium in 64, it actually, the second game was 23 innings. So this is before cell phones. My mother, you know, we lived upstate in New York. She had no idea where her husband and her little boy were. So she started calling the state troopers. And then they said, uh, uh, ma'am, uh, they're still at the ball game. And she said, well, they played two games. How can they still be playing at 1130 at night? You know, and she said, I think the troopers said that, um, uh, well, it's extra innings. And my mom just said, haven't they played enough already? So uh, I'm not a big fan, but I'll never forget that. That was Gaylord Perry actually introduced the football. Willie Mays played shortstop. It was, uh, so I was really hooked back then. Jason, if uh, our listeners wanted to find out about the books that you've written or maybe order them, how could they do that? How could they get that information? Well, sure. They can find them on amazon.com. They are readily available at Barnes and Noble and barnesandnoble.com and also on arcadiapublishing.com as well. And Jason's last name is spelled A-N-T-O-S, if you're going to Google it, everyone. Dave, I want to ask you about uh, a work of yours. Uh, You knew Yogi Berra, and you co-authored some books with him. What was that like? So Yogi was, um, you know, he's this legend, obviously. Nobody has won more World Series championships in the history of of the sport. He was, uh, you know, the anchor of that great Yankee dynasty. But I think maybe more people know him as this accidental philosopher, uh, you know, with the yogiisms. Uh, but to me, he was just like everybody's favorite uncle. Uh, he was just a very grounded, down-to-earth guy. What you see is what you got. So it was a real privilege and a pleasure to be associated with him, to be friends with him. Uh, went to a lot of Yankee games. I asked him a lot about Shea Stadium because, as Jason knows, uh, Yogi spent 10 years with the Mets. Um, he, after he had been fired as manager of the Yankees in 64, can you imagine he got fired for going to the seventh game of the World Series in his first year as manager and he gets fired? Uh, but Casey Stengel brought him over with the Mets. And so he spent 10 really memorable years at Shea uh, and then was manager of that, uh, you know, you got to believe team in 1973. But Yogi talked a lot about the stadiums. He um, he loved the old Yankee Stadium. He thought the uh, the new one looked like a, it was more like a shopping mall. Um, but the uh, Shea he um, got comfortable with it. But he said there was uh, there was a lot of uh, sewage <laughs> leaking down uh, beneath the uh, the clubhouse. But uh, he has only great great memories there because the '69 Mets. He was the first base coach, and that was one of the most you know, I, memorable teams in the in the history of the sport. 
And we're going to get to the old Yankee Stadium and Shea in a couple of minutes, but I, I just want to finish up on, on, on Ebbets Field, Dave. Um, what were some of the things that made Ebbets Field famous as an institution for baseball? You know, Jeff, I think it was really the fans. Uh, they were so, it was so part of their, their overall experience. Uh, uh, Ebbets Field was such a personal, familiar uh, experience for, for these fans. They were right on top of uh, the action. Um, the, the fans were, became celebrity. They were the super fans. Uh, Hilda Chester with her cowbell, uh, the symphony that played something resembling music. You know, they'd march around the, the stadium. Um, and, uh, you know, they, the players lived in these neighborhoods in Brooklyn. So there was a real intimacy. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, Ebbets has been romanticized so much and so much history happened there, you know, with Jackie Robinson, you know, breaking apartheid break it basically, you know, breaking the color barrier in baseball and uh, the boys of summer of the 50s. Um, it's, uh, I, I just think that uh, Brooklyn, you know, and Jason knows this in researching, you know, his book, or, you know, just as, you know, work on the Washington Park, you know, book, Brooklyn was a baseball hotbed, you know, even before the Civil War. So um, having a major league team right in Crown Heights, right there uh, in the neighborhood was just something that, uh really connected with everybody. Why the hell did the Dodgers leave? <laughs> Why did they leave Brooklyn? You know, yeah. a lot of, a lot of people in Brooklyn never forgave them. And my mother, um, uh, you know, she still doesn't forgive the Dodgers for leaving in 1957. It's like a 60, um, four year old grudge. She's had that grudge longer than I've been on the planet. And I've been here almost 61 years. Why did they leave? What happened? It depends on who you speak to. I mean, you know, Ebbets had become old. Uh, there was no parking. You know, a lot of the uh, people in Brooklyn started moving out to Long Island. Um, they needed a new stadium. Um, now, depending on who you speak with, um, Walter O'Malley wanted to build a new stadium in Atlantic Yards, which is now the site of the Barclays Center. Uh, but Robert Moses said no. He wouldn't give him the land. Uh, Moses did propose um, a, a place in Flushing Meadow, which is now the site, which site where Shea Stadium is. And O'Malley said, no, we're not the Queens Dodgers, we're the Brooklyn Dodgers. Right. So he obviously was courted by the, uh, you know, the city managers of Los Angeles and shown Chavez Ravine and where, where you know, this new uh, franchise could uh, take root. And uh, ultimately it was really for the money. Um, but, uh, you know, O'Malley is still seen, I think, by my former boss, uh, Pete Hamill, who passed away just last year. But he said one of the three you know, of the three most evil people in the 20th century, uh, one would be Hitler, two Stalin, three Walter O'Malley. I'm sure my mother would agree with that one. <laughs> All right. Um, moving along, we're going to take the subway back up to the Bronx, and we're going to talk about Yankee Stadium. We include it because in this show, because the Yankee Stadium we see today is not the original Yankee Stadium. It's not even in the exact location that it is now. It's across the street. Um, when Yankee Stadium was built, New York already had Ebbets Field in Brooklyn and the Polo Grounds in Manhattan. Um, you mentioned that the uh, was it Jacob Rupert who owned the Yankees who wanted his own stadium, and that's when they built uh, that's when they built Yankee Stadium. Yeah, you know, Jeff, it's interesting. Uh, Jacob Rupert, you know, of Rupert Brewery fame and the owner of the Yankees, always said the Yankee Stadium, he was fond of saying Yankee Stadium was a mistake. He said, not mine, but the New York Giants. Rupert 
did not believe that New York needed two stadiums. He really wanted to pay uh, John McGraw uh, money to pay him off. And then they demolish uh, the polo ground and build together jointly a big super stadium, a hundred thousand seat thing that would, you know, have boxing and baseball and they would share that. But McGraw wanted no part of it. So um, uh, Rupert built this majestic, um, you know, the first three tier stadium, you know, in the major leagues right across from Harlem River. And, uh, you know, because of the Yankees successes became the most famous, you know, stadium in, in, in all of uh, the country. And it, it definitely was inspiring and emotional. I mean, one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid was Pride of the Yankees that mm. Babe Ruth actually starred in, you know, he, right. he played himself. Let's talk about inspiration in a moment and, and emotion. Um, it said that more emotions had been stirred at and by things that happened at Yankee Stadium than any other ballpark in America. Uh, well, Cubs and Red Sox fans are going to would disagree with that, but we're in New York, be that as it may. Um, can you talk about some of those wondrous things that, that Yankee Stadium will probably forever be remembered for? Well, when you're talking the motion, obviously, you mentioned, you know, Gehrig's farewell uh, in 1939 when he, you know, in his Gettysburg Address to Baseball, you know, I consider myself the luckiest man, um, which became the movie that was a great movie, by the way. And just as an aside, I got to meet Teresa Wright, who played Gehrig's wife and brought her to the museum. And uh, that was a, a memorable time. But boy, you, I mean, look at the history there. You have some of the most, you have the most famous 60th home run, Babe Ruth, but famous 61st home run, Roger Maris. Uh, Joe DiMaggio launched his 56-game hitting streak there. Uh, you have this, you know, Don Larson's perfect game and never had been done before in the World Series in 1956. And um, just 27 championships. So uh, it was really a place that had so many moments and, uh, you know, not only that, but the uh, Yankee stadium, as I said, was also home for some, for concerts, uh, legendary heavyweight boxing matches. Um, uh, and also the home of the football giants from, from 56 to 73. Um, let's talk about, before we take a break, let's talk about rivalries in the same city. The Yankees and the Dodgers played 11 World Series. Is that where the sub, the term Subway Series got to be known? I, I, I was wondering if it was that or the three-stop shuttle that went across the Harlem River, you know, the old Cedric Avenue stop. I think uh, Subway Series. I mean, they, they literally took uh, – I mean, Yogi said they took Subways to Ebbets Field at times. I mean, um, so, yeah, it was it was Subway Series. But sadly for the Dodgers, I think they only beat the Yankees once Correct. in 1955. The Yankees yep. beat them 10 times. Um, I'm not really a diehard baseball fan. I discovered that in doing the research for the show, but I will have to tell my mother that one. How <laughs> would she love the Dodgers so much instead of the Yankees when they got beat you know, 10 out of 11 times? Um, Yankee Stadium went through two major renovations. Um, um, you want to talk about them briefly before we take a break? Just so... There was a lot of talk. Yankee Stadium in the that neighborhood in the South Bronx was really kind of getting pretty pretty shaky in the early seventies. Yankee Stadium needed mammoth repairs, um, and there was a lot of uh, talk that they were going to move to the Meadowlands. So Mayor Lindsay was able to convince um, the city to uh, 
put in a, a mammoth uh, renovation uh, where this, the contours of the stadium changed too. Monument Park was, or you know, or the monuments were were removed from the playing field. The dimensions were changed. It was a little bit more modernized. Um, so that was a, a big, big hundred thousand dollar. It was more than that. I think it was three hundred thousand um, back then. Actually, the Yankees had to play at Shea Stadium for t- two years during that renovation, 74 and 75. And that, that was very, very peculiar. Um, but then, um, you know, the new stadium was built in uh, 2009. It opened. And uh, so that was a very emotional moment for a lot of baseball fans when this stadium was taken down. Mm. And I, I imagine that they did because they really needed new facilities. Uh, also, commercially, they were able to have businesses that could have serviced people better who went to the okay. games. All right. Well, we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with sports journalist Dave Kaplan and historian Jason Antos about baseball stadiums that were in New York, but now are no longer with us. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back to rediscovering new york and our 110th episode take me out to the ball game this is about exploring baseball stadiums that uh was such a part and vital fabric of new york but now are no longer with us but that live in the hearts and memories of many many people my guests are sports journalist dave kaplan and jason antos uh president of the queen's historical society and author um, we're going to be speaking with Jason next about Shea Stadium. And I got to tell you guys that 
uh, coming around the horn here for the last segment. It's kind of bittersweet. I'm having a lot of fun talking about old baseball stadiums and stories of things that as a New Yorker, I, I have connected to and heard about a lot from old stadiums. Um, Jason, the Giants and the Dodgers left both left New York in 1957. Before there was a stadium, there had to have been a team before there was another stadium, Shea. Um, when did the Mets form and what led to the Mets forming, seeing that New York had just lost two of its three local baseball teams to California? With New York now down to one team, there was a, a tremendous outcry, public <clears throat> outcry that the Giants and the Dodgers had left. Um, it didn't really sit too well for fans who were not too fond of the Yankees. Uh, the rivalry was extremely bitter, and there was a, a need for another team. At that time, uh, Mayor Wagner of New York City uh, hired uh, William Shea, uh, who was a partner of Shea and Gold in Manhattan. It was a law firm uh, to try to bring another team to New York City. Uh, and at this uh, meeting, they had discussed uh, for the first time, really, uh, expansion of the leagues. Uh, William Shea tried to introduce something called the Continental League, uh, where he was going to try to bring an existing team or teams into this league and create a third league. Um, now this didn't really sit too well with MLB, and they decided that it would be best to generate um, a National League team from scratch. Uh, and there was many um, thoughts of what to call the new team, what the team would consist, uh, what players would be on the team. And one of the first names of the Mets that was uh, created was the, the, the bees. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't, I don't think there was doesn't have the same ring as the Mets, New York, Mets, the New York bees, yeah. Yeah, the New York bees. Uh, what's all the buzz about? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> And uh, the other one uh, was, I think, the Meadowlarks. Meadowlarks, right. Uh, again, not a very uh, attractive, uh, sexy name for it. It was team. like a public contest, I think, too. They yeah. People would send in their entries, the newspapers, and uh, ultimately, I think it was, uh, wasn't it Joan Payson who ultimately decided? Sure. So yeah. Joan uh, Whitney Payson, uh, who was, I, th I think, the, one of the first female uh, owners of, of a team. Uh, they had decided on on the Metropolitan Baseball Club, or Mets for short. Um, they had discussed building a new stadium in Brooklyn um, to satisfy the, the need uh, that was uh, left there when the Dodgers left. Uh, but they started looking elsewhere because they wanted room. They wanted to build in uh, they had decided to build in an area that was more underdeveloped than developed in Brooklyn. By that time, was extremely developed, highly populated borough in New York City. So one of the areas that uh, they came upon was uh, Flushing Meadows Park, uh, where the uh, old Corona ash dumps existed years prior. Uh, they were in the process of cleaning them up. Uh, Robert Moses was looking at the site in which to put the uh, second World's Fair uh, the 64-65 World's Fair. So since there was a lot of attention and development in that area, uh, it was decided to bring the stadium there. Is that the same part of Queens that F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about in The Great Gatsby? The people traveled the railroad and along sure. Northern Boulevard. That that was, you know, the ash dumps. That, yeah. Right. It absolutely is. It's mm. the Valley of Ashes. Mm. 
Uh, I suppose it was, uh, uh, you could refer to this project as a bit of urban renewal, uh, which we had a lot of in the 60s, except as a sports stadium. Um, and they built Shea Stadium. I remember as we were Mets fans and, uh, you know, my mother, we grew up in Sheepshead Bay. I think my mother's still reeling from the Dodger experience. It's like we could never be Yankees fans. So we became Mets fans. Um, it was quite striking. Uh, it's, it's construction. You'd go up uh, to the western side of it. Mm-hmm. And there would be this sort of an open stadium, but all these these uh, blue and orange tiles. It was very memorable. Um, I was one, I'm wondering, is that part of the original design or did they add that later on? Well, it was originally designed to be a domed stadium. Uh, that was one of the things that really shocked me when I was doing research for the book. And I actually have uh, in my possession an old uh, schematic of the dome version of Shea Stadium. Uh, but that was quickly abandoned. But they wanted to make it a multi-purpose stadium. They wanted it to be the most modern uh, ballpark ever built, and it was at the time. It was, uh, as you know, it was the home of the New York Jets for many years, for almost uh, for almost twenty years. And the stadium, the the field level seats were built on tracks, so that the field level seats could go from a diamond shape and go parallel to make the gridiron of the football field. Uh, that was uh, revolutionary in uh, ballpark technology, and you mentioned the the, the paint, the, those beautiful multicolored uh, levels. Uh, when the stadium opened in 1964, the stadium was still being constructed. Uh, uh, just two weeks prior to the stadium opening, the outfield wall was installed, and there was really nothing beyond it. There was a, a the scoreboard, of course, which was electronic, and that was also revolutionary for its time, but. When you look at, at pictures of, of those first games, especially if they're color photographs, you see that, 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 that there's a little bit missing of the stadium. And in the first game, uh, the, uh, the construction people had just painted the field level seats yellow. And a lot of people, people used to wear suits in those days when they got up from their seats, everyone had a yellow stain on their backside because uh, the paint had not yet dried. Wow. Well, actually, if the fence is not built, it could have been a modern day version of getting uh, watching the game for free, like some people looking from Coogan's Bluff down into the polo grounds or the oh, yeah. old Yankee Stadium used to be able to watch the game from the platform on the four train. I remember. And, and Shea I never... Stadium as well. You could watch it from the platform of, of the seven train. When you came down, there was like a like a roundabout where you brought the steps down to, uh, to Roosevelt Avenue. And and before the creation of City Field, you could watch uh, the game at Shea, you know, from the outfield. Uh, uh, viewpoint from the right field. Aside from uh, the Jets playing, what kind of other events took place at Shea Stadium? Oh, many events. They they used it. Uh, the Pope came to Shea Stadium twice. Uh, the first time in 1979, uh, it was used. Uh, the Beatles were there uh, in 1965, uh, which was a, a huge event, and and uh, and I believe it was the first outdoor concert stadium. Um, and uh, there was a tremendous, uh, beautiful documentary film made uh, by CBS uh, called The Beatles at Shea. And it's actually on YouTube. Jason, like the old Yankee Stadium, the Polo Ground, so many others, Shea met the wrecking ball, maybe too soon, because I yeah. think it was, you know, it was it was only maybe 40 years old when that happened. Why did they tear it down so soon? City field is beautiful and its facade is reminiscent of some of the older stadiums like Wrigley field and the old tiger stadium. And also what, you know, I've seen pictures of Ebbets field. Why did they, why did they tear down Shea? 
Well, it, it had been in disrepair towards the end. And I think, I mean, the, the legend has it that it was more economic to build a new stadium from scratch than to keep overhauling it. Uh, you know, they would have had to, you know, as, as the, I guess the demand by fans, I mean, uh, I certainly couldn't care one way or the other, but there was a demand for more modern day efficiencies, more, you know, places to, to eat and, and places to shop. And, you know, and that's why a lot of modern day ballparks have like a shopping mall uh, feel to them. I, I, I really don't go in for that. I'm just there to watch the game and, and, and have a beer if possible. But uh, sure. I mean, that's um, that, that's why they tore it down because it was uh, just simply out of date and it, and it was cheaper just to, to start from scratch. I was actually there and I videotaped, I had rented a, I had friends in the audio visual field years ago and I had, and I went down there to the site with a high definition video camera and I, and I filmed over a three day period, the final pieces of demolition. And I was there when they brought that last segment down and I oh. recorded it. Well, sort of sad, but then something rose up even from the ashes before they were, they were ashes. And I have to say, I really, I really do like City Field. Um, one thing interesting about City Field is that it has fewer seats than Chase Stadium had. Yes, uh, this is true. Um, but it, it's really, you know, I, I, I do enjoy City Field. Um, probably even a dozen times I've gone. I've gone. Guys, like I, so many. I'm sorry, Jason, go ahead. Sorry, before we go, just in 30 seconds, I got, I got to give a shout out to a, a local ballpark that we had here in Queens and Woodhaven. We got, I'm sure uh, Dave knows all about it, is, uh, is Dexter Park, which was in Woodhaven. And it was uh, home to the uh, Negro Leagues, yeah. uh, to the Brooklyn Bushwicks uh, for many years. It stood there right off of Jamaica Avenue for around 40-something years. And um, that also was another lost memory in the New York City baseball. Well, one of the ways that the memory of Shea Stadium lives is through your book, Jason. It's called Shea Stadium. It's by Jason Antos. You can find it by Googling it. It's on Amazon.com. And Dave, what's the name of uh, one of your books that you co-wrote with Yogi? Oh, um, well, when you come to Fork and Road, take it, or uh, you can observe a lot by watching. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are a couple of them. Great. Well, thank you, guys. Like happens so much on this program, the time goes real fast and we're out of time. I wish we had more to talk about such a fun topic, but I really thank you so much. Um, my two guests, Dave Kaplan, sports journalists uh, and author of co-author with Yogi Berra. Where is the name of the title again? Dave said it. Okay. And also Jason Antos, president of the Queens Historical Society and author of at least a half a dozen books on Queens, including Shea Stadium. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on my mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent of Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is Emily Schulman. Our production assistant is Leah Coppola. Our special consultant for the show is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who will be back in next week, actually. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff.
You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 